Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to the Old Testament. We're turning to 2 Kings again this evening. Uh, we're in the middle of a, a short series on King Josiah. His story is told towards the end of 2 Kings. You'll find our reading tonight on page 329 of the Pew Bibles, 2 Kings 22. Uh, we're going to read this entire chapter together, 20 verses long. Uh, quite a famous chapter, uh, as we're going to see. Uh, Hilkiah, the high priest in Josiah's day, finds the book of the law. And it's all quite dramatic. And uh, we'll see some of that drama as we read this passage together. So 2 Kings 22, and it's pages 329 over onto page 330 as well. And this is God's word to us. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adadiah of Boscath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshullam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal, for, for they deal honestly. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahakim the son of Shaphan, and Akbor the son of Micah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest and Ahakim and Akbor and Shaphan and Isaiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, son of Haras, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter and they talked with her. And she said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. 
But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus, say, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Kings 22. Uh, you'll find it on pages uh, 329 over into 330. And as you're turning to the Old Testament and to 2 Kings, uh, let's pray for a moment together. And as we pray, we use the words of the old hymn and ask that, Lord, you would make the book live to us, that you would show us ourselves, that you would show us our Saviour, and that you would make the book, your word, live to us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we're continuing our series on King Josiah. Uh, it's going to be a three-part series, so tonight is really the middle sermon. Uh, last week we set the scene, and we're going to recap on that in a moment. But to help us understand the message of this chapter, I want you to imagine it in our modern world. So let's give that a try. Let's try and put a modern spin on the events of this chapter. So the year is 2123. Okay, so we're all dead. Jesus still hasn't returned. That's not a prediction, by the way. No one knows the day or the hour, remember. So it's 100 years from now, 2123, and a church has fallen into disrepair. Not saying that it's our church, but if you want to imagine that it is, that's okay. So a church has fallen into disrepair. The decline happened over the course of 100 years. 100 years ago, it was a thriving evangelical congregation. There were lots of things happening in the congregation, and there were lots of people who trusted in Jesus. But as the years went on, things began to change. People moved away from the area to find work, and that left a group of keen Christians who grew old together. This core group eventually got too old to keep things going in the right direction, and the younger generation coming behind them weren't just as keen. They were Christians, but they weren't just as committed. The keen older generation died off, the less, the, the less keen younger generation took up the baton and things ticked along, but not with the same passion or vigor. Eventually, the less keen younger generation got old and died off and made way for the next generation. So we're about 50 years in, say, and this is the tipping point. The third generation comes along, and compared to the first generation, the really keen generation, they're completely different. They don't believe the same things. The gospel isn't as important anymore. And as well as that, the new generation want to turn church into a movement that is more in line with the culture than with what previous generations have understood the church to be. You can see the trajectory, hopefully. First generation faithful, Second generation less faithful, third generation faithless. Let's wind the tape on a little bit. We were 50 years in. Let's jump forward another 50 years to 2123. In the 50 years that have passed since the third generation took over, 
The church made lots of theological concessions, rejected most, if not all, of the main tenets of the Christian faith, and now they have a dwindling congregation, a huge building, and no one interested in joining them. Their liberalism has emptied the pews. Their building is old and in need of repair, but they still have a minister. He'll probably be their last minister because of their lack of numbers. He's okay, but as folks say, there's not a lot of poke with him. They also have a caretaker, and he looks after their huge, unused building. One day, the caretaker is tidying some rooms that haven't been used in years. There's lots of old leaflets, pamphlets, tracts. Well, while he's tidying, the, the caretaker comes across a Bible. He's quite surprised. He hasn't seen a Bible in this church for years. The third generation took all the pew Bibles out of the pews on the basis that the Bible wasn't relevant to modern people. Where the pew Bibles went in the end, no one quite knew. But the caretakers found one. And he begins to flick through it. He turns the dusty pages carefully. And he's shocked, disturbed even. That this is what the Bible says? That that's who we are as people? That's how we've responded and treated God. That's what God has done for us. I, I really can't get my head around all of this. I, I think I'm going to take this up to the minister. So up he goes, knocks on the door of the manse. Minister comes to the door. Caretaker explains what he's found. It, it's a Bible. Have you ever seen one of these? Asks the minister. He asks the minister. A long time ago, I didn't know our church had Bibles, replies the minister. You should read it. I was reading it earlier, and I couldn't believe what it says, the caretaker says. And that's what the minister does. He sits down, reads the Bible, and he can't believe what he's reading. He reads it cover to cover and scribbles down some of the big themes. So creation, God made everything. Fall, humanity is stained by sin. Redemption, God has intervened in time and history by sending his son, and he has died so that sinners can be rescued restoration one day God will end history and those who trust in him will be in heaven forever those who reject him will be in hell forever the minister can't believe it he's stunned he's converted he realizes who he is before God he realizes what God has done to save him and now he wants to tell everyone in his church and he wants to make some changes he wants to put this book this amazing story of what God has done front and center again, right at the heart of the church, just like it was 100 years ago. One of the things we said last week was that a key principle of biblical interpretation is that the Old Testament nation of Israel is replaced by the New Testament church. Both are the people of God, you'll remember. Both are described as the people of God. They just live on, the, on either side of the cross. Therefore, the stories about Old Testament Israel, Judah, have direct application to the church today. Israel and Judah forgot the word. The stories about both nations remind us of the importance of holding firm to the word. If we don't, if we as the people of God in our generation don't hold firm to the word, stories like the, ones we've like the one we've just imagined will be repeated up and down our island and across our world. And the scary thing is, the imaginary story we've just walked through is based on the true story found in, first, in 2 Kings 22. In this chapter, Josiah becomes king. He begins to repair the temple and the book of the law is found after almost 60 years. M more on all of that in a moment. 
But first, a short recap on the previous 60 or so years. Josiah's great-grandfather was Hezekiah. He was a good king, a godly man, a godly king. But his son, Josiah's grandfather, was a bad king. He was called Manasseh, and he reigned in Judah for 55 years. Now, just keep in mind that Israel had split in two. There was the northern kingdom, Israel, which by the time of the events recorded, recorded at the end of 2 Kings was in exile. And there was the southern kingdom of Judah. By Manasseh's day and by the end of his reign, Judah is on a trajectory towards judgment and exile. That's because Manasseh's reign was a spiritual disaster. His reign was 55 years of spiritual poison being pumped into the heart of the nation. Manasseh was gloriously converted, as we saw last week, on a personal, individual basis that should make us rejoice. But as we said last week, we shouldn't miss the fact that it was his reign that ultimately doomed the nation. There had been unfaithfulness before him, of course, but his idolatry and sin was the final straw. 55 years of Manasseh was followed by two years of Amon, his son. He was just as bad, but lasted for no time at all. He was assassinated, and then the people who assassinated him were assassinated themselves. 2 Kings 21 ended in a very messy way, but the people of the land put Josiah on the throne. And little did they know that God was going to use this young king for one last period of spiritual blessing before the nation went into exile. What we're going to see as we look at this chapter together this evening is what God gives, what God calls for, and how God speaks. Three simple points that will tie our time together in the Bible together this evening. First of all then, what God gives. He gives unexpected grace. Just look at how 2 Kings 22 begins. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. So fresh air begins to blow into Judah with, with the accession of an eight-year-old boy, eight-year-old Josiah. We're told that he does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. That's notable because there are only seven other kings of Judah who are described in the same way. I wonder if you could name them. If you can't, don't worry. The other seven are Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joas, Amaziah, Azariah, Jotham, and Hezekiah. So that's pretty good. He's one of eight good kings of Judah who do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. But what puts Josiah on a different level from those kings even is the comparison the writer makes with David. Josiah walked in all the way of David, his father. Uh, Josiah is from the line of David and we're told of only two other kings who walked in the way of David, Asa and Hezekiah. Hezekiah being Josiah's great-grandfather, of course. Now already from verses 1 and 2, we get the sense that Josiah has a, a spiritual quality that others before him have lacked. There's a bit of a jump in verse 3. We move from coronation day to the 18th year of Josiah's reign. Now, we're not told an awful lot about the first 18 years, but something significant happens when Josiah is 26. He issues a decree that the temple should be rebuilt and that jobs and tasks should be delegated to different people. You can see that in verses 3 to 7. It all seems a bit remote, but what's happening is essentially this. Josiah embarks on a rebuilding project. He wants to repair the temple after the shambles of Manasseh and Amon's reigns. 
And as well as that, he wants to make sure that everything is in order in terms of how the work proceeds. There's an emphasis on the industry and honesty of the temple officials when it comes to financial matters. All seems a bit remote, but Josiah is showing his spiritual pedigree. He walks in God's ways. He walks in the ways of his father, David. He's honest. He's upright. He doesn't turn aside to the right or to the left. And that's probably the key phrase in verses 1 to 7. Josiah doesn't turn aside to the right or to the left. He doesn't swing towards the left, towards liberalism and to falling in line with the thinking of the day. Nor does he swing to the right and towards religious legalism. Going in either of those ways denies the sufficiency of the word. Josiah stays on the line and goes straight and doesn't sway. In the context of all that has come before him, his accession to the throne and his reign is an example of the Lord's unexpected grace. In many ways, it's a lesson to us that we need to develop the right kind of expectancy. Josiah is an eight-year-old boy when he becomes king. No one would have been expecting anything from him. People probably just hoped that he was better than the last guy. They had no idea what God was about to do. They had no idea about the grace that he was about to pour into their lives through this young king. We, we need to develop the right kind of expectancy because we never know what God might be about to do. What he might do in our hearts in terms of spiritual growth, what he might do in our life as a church family through people coming to know Jesus, how he might help us with our building project. We need to develop the right kind of expectancy. This opening section of the chapter tells us what God gives. He, he gives unexpected grace. The, the next part tells us what God calls for. And he calls for unrestrained repentance. And we've read the story over tonight and we've imagined it in a modern setting. So we're not going to go over all the details with a fine-tooth comb. But Hilkiah the high priest finds the book of the law and he gives it to Shaphan and he reads it to Josiah. Josiah's response is the focus of our second point. So just look at verses 11 to 13. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah and others to go to inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. A couple of things to unpack here. First of all, Josiah's spiritual pedigree is on show again. He's a very good example of someone who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles before the word of the Lord. That's, that's, the kind of, that's the kind of person that the Lord promises to look on in Isaiah 66 verse 2. Josiah is humble. He doesn't stand on his dignity. He doesn't play the I'm the king card. He wants to know more about the law and what it says and what it means for him and the nation. Now, this is worth lingering on. Jo jo Josiah's humility is a very uncommon quality in our modern world. So think of Instagram influencers who are promoting themselves endlessly, their, their products, their brands. Th think of politicians who are always grasping for votes. There's not a lot of humility on show. If you were to sit someone like that down and, and read them some scripture, a, a basic outline of the gospel, say, they probably wouldn't respond in the way Josiah does. They would probably be very offended at you calling them a bad person, a sinner even. 
they would probably say, well, that's just your interpretation, your opinion. I have a different interpretation and I'm entitled to it. Christians should be the most humble of people. It's as Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He wasn't saying be a wuss and take whatever abuse comes your way. He was talking about Christians being people who don't assert themselves over others in order to further their own agendas. And that's Josiah. He could have just ignored what he heard, but the Lord was working in his heart and he responds with a humble, contrite spirit. The other thing to mention is the depth and nature of Josiah's repentance. It is unrestrained repentance. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. In Bible times, tearing your clothes was an outward indication of inward distress. In this case, it's a clear sign of repentance. The more Josiah heard about what God required, the more clearly he saw how far short his kingdom fell from God's requirements. Temple repairs were good and needed, but what God really wanted from his people was a heart of faithful devotion. When the king saw the massive gap between what the word required and the way his people were living, it pierced his soul. He repented. In comparison, what passes for repentance these days is is fairly half-hearted. We casually admit that we are guilty of certain sins and utter a few prayers of confession, but not much more. Christians who are growing in their faith aren't complacent about repentance. And we need to understand what repentance isn't. Repentance isn't a feeling. Repentance is an action. Repentance is not you feeling sorry that you did something wrong before God. It's also not thinking of saying sorry for the thing that you've done. Sometimes we can feel an emotion but not act on it. That's not repentance. Repentance is turning back to God, confessing your sin, and pleading for forgiveness. When was the last time you properly repented? When was the last time you were properly grieved, genuinely grieved by something that you have done that is clearly out of step with the words? Penetrating questions. This is what God calls for from his people. Unrestrained repentance. He sees through our sheen of goodness. That sheen of goodness and uprightness that we put on before we come to church that sheen of goodness that other people see and think, they are super faithful. God knows where we stand before him in terms of our present walk, and he calls those of us who know and love him to a daily repentance, a a daily accounting for our sin. Preachers of a former day would have talked about keeping short accounts with God. In other words, keeping up with our repentance. That's not the basis of our standing before God. Of course it's not. But there is a call in the Bible to to, to make sure that there's no outstanding sin in our lives. To make sure that there's no sin that we haven't confessed or admitted before the Lord. What God gives, unexpected grace. What God calls for, unrestrained repentance. How God speaks with uncompromising clarity. That's our third point. How God speaks, he speaks with uncompromising clarity. In verses 14 to 20, Hilkiah and some others are dispatched to check if what has been read is actually true. They've got the law, but they need a prophet to help them interpret and understand it. Those dispatched go to a lady called Hulda in verses 15 to 20. 
We need to say a little bit about her. Je- Jeremiah and Zephaniah were the main prophets at this time in Judah's history. It seems strange that neither of them were approached and Hulda is instead. Some people suggest that Hulda was Jeremiah's aunt. It's difficult to be sure of that. What we can be sure of, though, is that Hulda was a godly woman who confirms what is already known. Her prophecy makes two points. First of all, there is no hope. God is going to bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. There is no hope. Judah has forsaken God and the inferno of his rage will not be put out. Manasseh crossed the line. Second, there is some mercy. First, there is no hope. Second, there is some mercy. Since King Josiah's heart was penitent, verse 19, when he heard the threats of the law and since he humbled himself and repented, God will bring him to his grave in peace. Josiah won't see the disaster that's about to wash over Judah. So judgment is certain, according to Hulda, but judgment is delayed. Disaster is on the way, but disaster is not yet. Hilda's prophecy is a bit like getting a second opinion from a doctor who thinks your prognosis is even worse than you were first led to believe. There's an uncompromising clarity to it. And there's uncompromising clarity to how God speaks to us through his word today. There is no hope. There is no hope for you if you die and you're outside of Christ. That's what the Bible says. If you meet God without trusting in Jesus, the consequences are too awful to imagine. But there is mercy. If you repent of your sin and believe that Jesus has paid the price for your rebellion, you will be welcomed into the family of God. And that mercy is available tonight if you would only come to God through Jesus. What God gives, unexpected grace. What God calls for, unrestrained repentance. And how God speaks with uncompromising clarity. The, the, the challenge for us this evening is to, is to take heed of what this chapter shows us. The danger in reading a story like this is that we ignore it, we relegate it, and say that it's just an obscure Old Testament story that no one ever reads, and we disregard its message. Do you know what will happen if we do that, if any church does that? We'll end up like our imaginary church from the beginning, a, dwell, a dwindling congregation, a huge building, and no one interested in joining us. It may not be the most appealing message. It may not be trending at the moment. But the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And through it, we can experience life in all its fullness. Now, we could leave things there. But that would leave the sermon as nothing better than a synagogue sermon. Do better, be better, be more like Josiah. You, you know that's not how we think in church. We've got to read this story and understand this story with the greater Josiah in mind. King Jesus, who would come later. The perfect king. The one who appeared when no one thought he would. The one who came in God's time and provided unexpected grace to a world lost in darkness. We've got to remember that King Jesus called for unrestrained repentance. What are the first recorded words of Jesus in Mark's gospel? Mark writes, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
Jesus called for people young and old to repent and believe in him. And he spoke with uncompromising clarity. All those who believe in him will have life. All those who reject him will experience judgment and death. He still speaks with that uncompromising clarity through his words. As those who know and love him, we should hold firm to the word, especially on the cusp of another church season. That this book, this story, is the only thing that will change people's lives. Do, do we believe that? Are we committed to teaching it faithfully? Are we investing our time and energy into knowing the scriptures and therefore knowing Christ better? Well, what if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian? Well, what does this passage say to you? Well, it's as we've said already. There is no hope for you if you die and are outside of Christ, but there is mercy in that you can come to him tonight. If you count the cost and answer Jesus' call on your life, you can know the Lord now and forever. So that's 2 Kings 22. What God gives, unexpected grace. What God calls for, unrestrained repentance. And how God speaks with uncompromising clarity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and active and that by your spirit, you speak to us today. We thank you for the clarity of your word, of how simple it is to understand and read. And we pray that we would take the lessons of Josiah's story to heart tonight, that we would remember that you've shown us unexpected grace through Jesus and that you call us to unrestrained repentance. Father, help us as individuals and as a church family to follow you faithfully in these days. And we pray that you would speak to those who haven't yet trusted in Christ, that they might come to him for the first time in repentance and faith. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.